This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Bills are piling up for Governor Jared Polis's signature after a busy legislative session. In fact, there's an extra table set up in his office specifically for signing ceremonies. This was the first session since Polis's election and since Democrats took total control of state government. Polis sat down with me Monday at the state capitol for our regular discussion. We touched on health care costs, vaccinations, and climate change. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Ryan, always a pleasure. I want to ask you about a new UN report. It finds around a million plant and animal species face extinction, many within decades. Uh, To quote one contributor, we are eroding the very foundations of our economies, food security, health, and quality of life. Uh, It cites climate change as one culprit. Colorado's legislature passed a bill this session with goals to cut greenhouse gas emissions significantly. What precisely will change because of that? Of course, we all know that climate change affects species diversity. It affects our ecosystems. In Colorado, it affects jobs because we have two very important climate-dependent industries, agriculture and the ski industry. And uh, we're also very vulnerable to both fires and floods. So we're doing our part. We're very excited to be moving on our pathway to 100% renewable energy by 2040, which is what I ran on at the same time, trying to reduce emissions from vehicles through uh, improving access to electric vehicles and low-emission vehicles. And And finally, uh, reducing emissions around the oil and gas industry, especially with regard to methane. It's interesting you talk about jobs because the argument against many of the measures uh, that you've cited there is a jobs argument, specifically as it relates to traditional energy. And I'll, I'll just note that not a single Republican voted for the climate change measure I mentioned. Is there a way to engage more Coloradans, ones across the aisle, for instance, in your climate agenda? Yeah, this is a real problem in America that the Republican Party today has a difficult time talking about climate change. Uh, Unlike conservative parties in in England, United Kingdom, or France, or uh, other industrialized nations, there is a strong anti-science contingent in today's Republican Party. But I think it's important that pro-science conservatives and Republicans really speak out and are willing to work with Democrats on market-oriented solutions to climate change, uh, because we're all paying the price for the changing climate. Do you know those folks? Do you enlist those folks? I've worked with many nationally, of course. Um, There's a group called uh, R Street, which does great work in this area, conservative organization focusing on conservative solutions for climate change. Former Secretary of State George Schultz has talked extensively about this. It's yet to be manifested in sort of the elected state legislative Republicans here, but I would highlight the efforts of many Republican local elected officials, certainly Mayor Wade Troxell in Fort Collins uh, has been a leader. Um, He's a registered Republican uh, in helping their municipal utility in the city of Fort Collins move towards renewable energy, as well as city council and mayors uh, in other areas of the state. The legislature addressed your top priorities this past session, paying for full-day kindergarten, passing measures aimed at lowering the cost of health care. I want to know what the next big thing is then for the Polis administration with those priorities seemingly addressed. Well, first of all, we have a lot of work to do to implement these changes. So we passed a number of measures that will give us the ability to save Coloradans significant money on their health care bills. One of them is reinsurance. It'll bring down rates in the individual market by at least 10% 
in the Denver metro area, upwards of 25% in western Colorado, the highest priced areas. But every Coloradan will save money in the um, individual market uh, if you don't have employer-backed coverage. We looked at hospital pricing transparency. We passed it, reining in surprise out-of-network billing. So there's a lot of implementation work, as well as setting up a program to safely import prescription drugs from Canada. Full-day kindergarten is largely implemented at the school district level. Most districts offer full-day kindergarten today. It's just that parents have to pay for it. So some districts already have free, and, and they've been paying for it by diverting funds from other resources. But for many districts, like Jeffco, most of the Adams districts, Denver, parents have to pay several hundred dollars a month for kindergarten. That will end this fall. I heard from a mother in Douglas County who had already made a $600 deposit. Of course, she got the deposit back, and that'll form the basis of a college savings account for her kindergartner. You mentioned some of the healthcare measures. So, for instance, importation of drugs from Canada, reinsurance, and I'll mention a third, which is a study of a public option in Colorado, whether that's viable here. What's fascinating is that all three of those have to have federal approval. So essentially, as things stand now, the Trump administration would have to say, Governor Polis, we grant you the the ability to do any of these. What's the long-term strategy there? Do you hope the Trump administration signs off on these? Do you hope that a new administration comes in, a Democratic administration that greenlights some of this? So with regards to reinsurance, which will drive down rates in the individual market by preventing the highest cost cases from driving up rates for the rest of us, uh, more than nine states already have the waiver granted, and we were in constant conversations with CMS and the Trump administration. So CMS is uh, Center for Medicaid. Uh, yes, and they are the ones that uh, also would rec- would have to grant that waiver request as they have in nine other states. Okay, so in- with reinsurance, they seem to be on board. Well, we certainly hope so. Uh, okay. There's a number of other states that have done it, unlike, for instance, prescription drug importation, where us in Florida are really the first states to proceed all the way through to a waiver request. Now, Governor DeSantis of Florida, who I got to know as a colleague of mine in Congress, had a conversation with President Trump in which President Trump assured him that the waiver would be granted to save people money on prescription drugs. The idea of a public option, though, is likely to be met less favorably by the Trump administration, wouldn't you say? A co-op or public option would be for the year after next, because this is a one, the bill is more than a study. It gives the authority to set it up, but would have to plan it over the next year and a half. So this process will lead to a, either a co-op, a nonprofit, a public. Part of what the study will do is look at the governance and make sense, as well as making sure that financially it makes sense for our state to really improve access to choices for consumers across Colorado and who they get their health care from. Do you think it depends on having a Democrat in the White House? When we're ready with our public option, we're happy to take it to any administration, Republican or Democratic, to ask for the waiver we need to give Colorado consumers more choice on where they get their health insurance. Governor, we received a question about full-day kindergarten through our Colorado Wonders project. Folks ask us questions that they want answered about their state. Olivia Sang, who lives near Fort Collins, wants to know if it will result in a tax increase to pay for it in future years. Uh, No, of course not. Uh, You know, the way that the state budget works is the only people that can ever increase taxes are the voters. Uh, This is funded out of the current budget. We made it a priority to say that the state uh, should treat kindergarten just like first grade, just like second grade, which Oklahoma does, Nebraska does, most of our neighboring states do. And it's really about time that we save families in the case of the questioner in Poudre School District, but in many other school districts across the state, the three or $400 a month it costs for kindergarten. This legislative session was successful in cutting taxes in two key 
key areas. One is we reduce the residential assessment rate. And now, you know, again, with people's home values have gone up, so the, and, and, and there's also a local tax, but at least the state assessment rate has declined. The other one is a bigger one, and that is a tax cut to 144,000 small businesses and retailers. Uh, and it, it's called the vendor fee. And what effectively it does is allows small retailers to retain 4% of the sales tax they collect rather than 3.3%. That's part of the picture. We should talk about the proposal the legislature sent to voters, which deals with the constitutional amendment that has shaped the state's financial standing for decades. That's TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Uh, TABOR requires voters to approve every tax increase, and it caps state spending, sometimes refunding the excess money back to the people. In November, voters will be asked to lift that cap permanently so the state could keep any refunds and spend the money for education and transportation. I wonder if you'll campaign for that measure. Will that have your vocal support? Well, there's a very strong you know, bipartisan coalition, uh, myself included, that believe this is it's simple good governance to when the state has a good year to allow the state to invest uh, without raising taxes, that money in keeping up with growth. It's not likely we're going to have much, if any, of a Tabor surplus this year, so it doesn't necessarily affect the budget. But when the economic times are good, there is more demand on our roads. One of the biggest issues I hear from voters is we haven't kept up with the growth, meaning housing costs have gone up, the roads have got more clogged. Um, if you look at some of the root causes of that, it's been our inability to pass things like, for instance, 109 or 110, two different mechanisms that would have funded roads and infrastructure, both failed. I was very proud of our state legislature for stepping up and funding transportation to the tune of $300 million, even more than the $200 million that John Hickenlooper proposed. Um, but to really make a dent, we will need to go to the voters with a plan that ends decades of underinvestment in our roads and infrastructure and really plans for not just where our state is today, but where we are in 10 years, where we are in 20 years. And yet you said that that wouldn't necessarily go very far. Are you talking about a more fundamental uh, re-engagement with Tabor? Well, again, I think when people uh, want to invest in something, they want to know exactly where the money's going. Um, That's why I think on the internet sports gaming proposal, the money is going to be going to uh, water projects around the state. And if there is any money around the Tabor cap piece, it would go to higher ed, to roads, and to K-12. This legislative session, by many accounts, went off the rails. Lawmakers pulled all-nighters, worked weekends. Hearings were scheduled at the last minute, in one case touching off a protest from people who wanted to testify and didn't get to. The parties blame each other. Democrats say Republicans were obstructionists. Republicans say Democrats, who controlled both chambers, rammed controversial bills through just because they had the power to. Uh, This is Republican Senator John Cook of Weld County, Assistant Minority Leader in the State Senate. You know, I've described it several times as Sherman's march to the sea. They got control and they just, you know, destroyed everything in their path. And it was like, we've got control now. Who knows long how we might lose it in another year. So let's get everything done this year. Did Democrats overreach? Well, you know, what I think was really remarkable is... In the aggregate, probably tens of thousands, if not thousands, of everyday Coloradans came and testified on bills and got heard. When they got the proper notice. Well, I mean, the fact that tens of thousands, you know, people flocked here and many of these committees were going till three or four in the morning listening to people. I know that uh, many of the folks that came to testify had to wait uh, and they did so because they were passionate. uh, And I mean, there was ample 
citizen involvement. Uh, but I, on all the big priorities that we focused on, there were strong bipartisan successes, like talking about free full-day kindergarten, the health care bills, reinsurance led by Republicans and Democrats, hospital pricing transparency. And yet several of the big bills from this session are now under siege. Uh, the Rocky Mountain gun owners have sued to block the gun control measure known as the Red Flag Bill. Several lawmakers face possible recalls over that gun law and another new law that increases local control of oil and gas development. Um, the recall effort that seems most advanced is against Representative Rochelle Galindo of Greeley. Uh, if that qualifies, will you campaign on her behalf? You know, Rochelle Galindo has really been a breath of fresh air in the Capitol. She's done an amazing job. She's one of the original co-sponsors of full-day kindergarten. Uh, and much of her district, Greeley 6, had full-day kindergarten. So what that meant was they were taking money out of other grade levels to do that. There was a great article in the Greeley Tribune last month that showed that if full-day kindergarten passed at that point and hadn't yet passed, it would mean a raise for all teachers in the district. So, I mean, Rochelle Galindo has a lot of those solid accomplishments to go back to her voters and say, look, teachers, you're underpaid, you work hard, we finally got you a raise by passing full-day kindergarten. Uh, People have a say and communities have a say over where and how oil and gas developments affect their quality of life and know that we're looking at putting people's health and safety first. So I think there's been a lot of great bipartisan work this session. Uh, It sounds like you're campaigning on her behalf now, actually, Governor Polis. Well, you probably have some listeners in Greeley that are talking, hearing about the great work of uh, Rochelle Galindo and hearing uh, about the their health. Obviously, people can challenge bills in courts. I mean, that's a cherished part of our system, and and they're entitled to do that. We also have part of our system where people can petition items to the ballot. And so uh, that, again, if there's sufficient interest, for instance, in holding an election around the electoral vote, then enough people sign it, it'll be on November's ballot. If there's not enough interest in doing that, then it won't be. So I I support that system. I support the right of people to petition. Uh, I support the ability to challenge laws in courts. And uh, those are all great things that really help, you know, make Colorado and America a nation of laws. But they don't tell you anything about what just happened in, under the dome here in the last Well, session. I think it's, a, I mean, many laws get get challenged, Ryan. And, and again, I, I think what matters is how the courts rule. I mean, the Affordable Care Act got challenged. It withstood it, uh, The expand, which including the expansion of Medicaid, which brought the uninsured rate in Colorado from about 12% to about 6%. So, of course, we fully expect that part of that process is that when laws are passed that do things, that they will be challenged by those who don't support them, and they deserve their day in court like anybody else. And that some of those candidates deserve their day on the ballot in the sense of a recall. Well, if enough people gather signatures, I mean, it's very easy to file the paperwork to say, I want to recall so-and-so. What really matters at the end of the day is whether enough people sign that, and then, of course, what happens uh, as a result of the special election that ensues. One of the most contentious bills of the session split you from members of your own party. Uh, It aimed to increase the vaccination rate by making it harder to get non-medical exemptions. Uh, According to the latest report from the CDC, measles cases in the U.S. have hit a 25-year high, more than 700 cases reported, and uh, more than 500 of those were people who were not vaccinated. By the end of April, there had been one measles case reported this year in Colorado. If there were multiple cases or a real outbreak, what would you tell people who argue that the answer is stricter exemptions? You know, first of all, this is just so ridiculous that in this day and age, measles should be extinct. 
It should not be a public health issue. But the failure of uh, parents to inoculate their children has led to a resurgence in measles and other diseases that are completely addressable through immunization. So we, when I was first elected in January, we said it is one of our top three priorities of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment to increase the immunization rate in Colorado. I suppose there are some who would say, well, it's ridiculous that Colorado has such easy exemptions. That's what's ridiculous. What do you say to those folks? Well, you have to win people's minds and hearts. Parents want to do what's in the best interest of their children. And if they're getting bad information, then we need to take it upon ourselves to make sure that parents have the very best information to make the decision that will protect the health of their kids. Uh, We're going to be focusing on some of the areas of our state in western Colorado and other parts of the state that have some of the lower immunization rates to make sure that they have the information they need to make the right decision to immunize their children. Okay, so there'll be a regional component to this. But I have to say, there are a number of people who don't vaccinate or don't fully vaccinate and who say, I've got the information. That's why I made the choice I made. What do you do if education doesn't change minds? Well, we have a lot of tools uh, to with parents and with kids to be able to do that. Give me an example uh, of another. Well, again, one that uh, we would love to be able to deploy is requiring the consent of both parents to opt out rather than a single parent of an immunization process, empowering students at a younger age as we do for when they seek, for instance, HIV counseling or treatment. There's a special exemption in the law. Allow them to choose to ha- immunize themselves at a younger age rather than have to wait till the age of majority. And a lot of it is access. It's not all willful decision-making. So some of it is mobile uh, vaccination clinics that are able to go to some of the areas with the lowest immunization rates and make sure that the kids have access. All three of these are fronts you're moving on? We're moving on many fronts. Again, it's one of the top goals when I was first elected. I said we want to increase the immunization rate in Colorado because it truly is a public health issue in our state. Does your health department have a plan to contain an outbreak of measles, for instance, if it happens here? Well, we have, we have, we have various contingency plans for various diseases. So I did a, a dry run with our health department around uh, Ebola. It could have been another communicable disease, but the model that we used was Ebola. So we've looked at the protocol of the patient arriving at the airport, the chain of isolation all the way to the part of Denver Health, which had volunteer doctors and nurses that had special outfits, uh, along with the containment ward that's set up for that specific purpose. So we do drills like that all the time, but I personally joined and observed a drill to kind of, first of all, thank the men and women who participated in it, but also to elevate the importance of these kinds of public health drills in our state, because it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. I mean, it could be, it might not be Ebola, it might not be measles. In fact, the fact that we're talking about those two means it could be something else. I'll give you an example. We have an outbreak of uh, hepatitis A in El Paso County right now. So we're already taking steps, predominantly among the homeless and the recently uh, incarcerated population, to try to deliver increased uh, vaccinations and treatment in El Paso County. How much time and space do you make in your day to hear viewpoints that are different from your own. And I wonder where you turn for that. Well, during the legislative session, I met with nearly every member of the state legislature, Republican and Democrat. So we've had one-on-one meetings and really asking Republican and Democratic legislators, what are your priorities? Uh, We got through most of those members to hear about that. And of course, we worked on many of the big bipartisan bills with their members. Um, I also visited over 40 cities across the state just in my 
you know, 115, 120 days in office. I'll be in Grand Junction again later this week. Was in Fort Morgan and Wiggins and Colorado Springs and Pueblo uh, all in the last week. So really getting out and making sure we hear what's on people's minds across the state is really an important part of doing this job well. Uh, That trip to Fort Morgan drew some headlines because the crowd was not necessarily friendly to you when you walked in the door. Uh, And I, I wonder how you deal with crowds that are less than welcoming. Well, I would say the crowd was very friendly. It's just wherever I have a public event now, you're going to have, you know, 20 or 30 people that don't like me that also show up in addition to the regular, uh, you know, folks who live in the area. So, uh, you know, probably what, I don't know, maybe 80 people there and there are probably about 20 from the group that doesn't like me. Are you Uh, saying they're interlopers? Well, no, they're residents of Colorado, too. Uh, so, I mean, but what I, what I said to their credit is they were polite and no one interrupted uh, anything we said. And they asked uh, their questions and they got heard. Uh, and, you know, at times there were boos and cheers, but not so much that it interrupted uh, the discussion that we were having with the residents of Fort Morgan. I wonder if we might leave Colorado for a minute and talk about presidential politics. There are now 21 Democratic candidates, uh, including two from Colorado, former Governor John Hickenlooper, of course, and uh, more recently Michael Bennett, uh, the U.S. senator entering the race. Do you have a favorite yet? Among the 21, is there, are there a few that you're watching particularly closely? Well, you know, at this point, Ryan, there's some that I just know better than others because I've worked with them. They tend to be those who served in Congress. I certainly know John Delaney, uh, Beto O'Rourke, Tulsi Gabbard, just because I, I, I worked with them. Uh, and, of course, John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett very well and others I know in passing. Uh, what, what I wanted to make sure is that Colorado got to have our voices heard in the nominating process. And I was very proud to just have recently announced that we're scheduling our primary for Super Tuesday, March 3rd. So people will get their ballots uh, two or three weeks before that. We'll be among those early states that matter. Uh, under the existing statute, we could have gone a week or two later, but I wanted to make sure that uh, the candidates are spending time here. If nothing else, they'll be taking out hotel rooms and buying food with their entourages and hopefully creating good jobs for Coloradans. Uh, but if one of them goes on to be president, we want to make sure they know about our concerns here in Colorado. It does not sound like you have narrowed your list or you're unwilling to say if you have. Well, look, I've been, as you know, focused on, on uh, saving people money on health care and free full-day kindergarten and uh, moving our economy forward in Colorado. I think it's terrific that there's so many candidates because it's really an audition for a very important job, President of the United States. And I think that the more we get our candidates out there listening to people, talking about their ideas, sharing their vision for our future, uh, the better our nation will be. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My regular conversation with Colorado's Democratic Governor, Jared Polis. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an important service for immigrants that's also ripe for disruption. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Immigrants often work long hours at low-paying jobs to help support family back home. What one person can scrape together each month may not be much, but collectively it's huge. Immigrants around the world sent home more than $500 billion last year. That kind of money attracts innovators. And it's the subject of Disruptors Today, our series about the changing face of business in Colorado. 
Money transfers are known as remittances, and Denver's home to the industry, Goliath, Western Union, and now something of a David tool. World Remit is a London-based company that has opened its American headquarters here. Dan Canning is the U.S. head for World Remit. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. Colorado has half a million residents who were born outside the United States, and some of these are your customers. Tell us about them. Who are they? How much money are they sending? And where to, for the most part? Yeah, that's right. So one in five Coloradans is either an immigrant or the son or daughter of an immigrant. And most of those folks have ties back to the country of birth and are sending money on a regular basis for lots of different reasons, everything from supporting day-to-day living, school fees, medical fees, uh, and, and groceries, to being able to help support celebrations. We're about to come on to Mother's Day here this weekend. Um, we're in the season of Ramadan. We have Christmas um, and Diwali in, in uh, October. So people are sending money for all kinds of different reasons. From Colorado, we have uh, a very diverse immigrant community. So we have significant uh, money transfer volumes that are moving to Africa, uh, parts of Asia, such as the Philippines, and of course, Latin America, led by Mexico, given the, the size of the Mexican uh, population here in Colorado. I think globally, India is the largest recipient of remittances. Do I have that right? You do have that right. Okay. Ryan. Yes. So a lot of these folks are breadwinners abroad, you might say. Yeah, that's right. That's a, a good way to, to think of it. Um, remittance is, is really a, a force for good uh, in the world, and that is really helping to improve uh, people's lives all around the world. Remittance, for example, um, we estimate that 3.5 million children um, in the world are able to get a primary education directly as a result of receiving remittances. It's interesting. Some developing economies, I've learned, get more cash from immigrants abroad than from corporate investment in those nations. Your company was founded by an immigrant. Just tell us briefly that story. Yes. Um, our founder, Ishmael Ahmed, is from Somaliland, and he was an immigrant to the United Kingdom. He was studying in the United Kingdom, and he was sending money back home to support his family um, as a student and then and after, after he graduated. And he saw an opportunity back in 2010 to leverage technology and changes in technology and essentially build a better mousetrap and enable remittances from the convenience of that little computer in your in your pocket, which is your smartphone. Your smartphone. Well, let's talk about the current mousetrap. I mean, I think of Western Union based in Colorado. They've been wiring money for 168 years. First off, what's their big advantage in this? So Western Union is what we would refer to as one of the traditional <clears throat> money transfer companies. And so Western Union has built a very large global network. And the traditional means of sending money is um, kind of a, a a bit of, we think of maybe a bit antiquated process whereby an individual has cash and may walk down to or, or drive to a King Supers or a Safeway or maybe the bodega in their in their neighborhood. Where Western Union has an enormous presence, where, the, where the West, network you speak of. That's right. That's right. And then some perhaps have to wait in line and um, hope, hope that the place is open when, when they're trying to send their money, fill out a form and then than, than send the money. So um, we at World Remit have a we're what we call a digital pure play. So we have only a, a digital 
presence from a sending perspective. Now, I'll note that in the last decade or so, a lot of competitors have entered this market. I mean, I think of big players like PayPal and uh, quite a few smaller companies like World Remit. What's creating the opportunity here, do you think? So it's technology. So the fact that 80% of all Americans have a smartphone essentially means that 80% of all Americans have a computer in their pocket 24-7. Some of us sleep with our, with our smartphones. And that enables access to money transfer in a way that, that hadn't existed before. But doesn't that assume that they are also banked? In other words, that they have bank accounts as opposed to using cash? It does. It does. And the, the vast majority of uh, immigrants in the United States and in Colorado actually are banked. There's a bit of a misconception that they're not, but they are. And what about the recipients? Do they have to be? They don't. So the money can move in, in to a, a very a, several different channels. One could be into a bank account, which we would consider digital. Uh, another new and, and, and burgeoning technology, especially in parts of Africa and Asia, are what are called mobile wallets. So mobile wallets are accessible via people's mobile phone, even the old-fashioned flip phone, mm. and basically enable people who previously weren't banked to uh, be able to access financial services through a mobile wallet. And then the third traditional method is is cash and being able to pay out um, pay out the, the money transfer in cash. I seem to remember cash. The thing you held right. in your the hand last and time, actually paid with. <laughs> the last time we, we walked around with, ca- with cash in our hand was a while ago. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series, Disruptors, about entrepreneurialism in the state, we're looking at the world of remittances and how it's ripe for disruption. Uh, we have a giant in Colorado in the realm of wiring money. That's Western Union. But we're hearing about uh, more of a startup that's World Remit, which has opened its U.S. headquarters in Colorado. Uh, Western Union and PayPal have apps as well and much better name recognition. How do you win customers? Do you beat the the bigger guys at the cost and the fee aspect of this? Yeah, so... Competition in, in marketplaces is good for the, the customer, and it makes us all better competitors. And so World Remit does have the challenge of building a, a brand and building trust because this is moving money. So trust is is Huge. critically important uh, when somebody um, chooses a money transfer company. And we've been at that that for quite a while. We've built a really, really what we call a frictionless experience, a, a simple um, interface that allows customers to send money almost as easily as if you're sending money via Venmo or Zelle, uh, names that many of our customers, uh, many of your, reader, your listeners may be aware of. Those are domestic money transfers. We're enabling cross-border international money transfer, oh, and that's the difference. But let's talk about cost, because industry-wide, it's about 7%. So if I send $100 overseas, only about $93 gets to my you know, great aunt. The rest is eaten up by transaction costs. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's where you're competing. That is another area, actually, that we are competing. So because our our interface is completely digital, there are efficiencies in that model versus the old kind of old-fashioned cash model. So in fact, maybe a bricks-and-mortar co- network. A brick-and-mortar network, exactly. So we are able to offer our service at a lower cost to the con- consumer. So yes, we are actually competing on a better overall value and cost. I mean, a lot of your customers, the senders and the recipients, are struggling. I mean, you know. Every dollar counts. Fees, right. It's That's real right. Money to them. That's right. You talked about trust. I guess before we go, a question about 
uh, how susceptible this world is to fraud? So fraud is is something that exists, and all money transfer companies have to manage that carefully. Uh, unfortunately, there are, there are a few bad apples um, that are always trying to compromise any money movement system, be it with the banks, be it with the money transfer companies. So we've built a, a very sophisticated model um, that uses technology to try and uh, protect the integrity of not only our system, but ultimately the money transfers of all the good guys out there are working hard to help support family and loved ones back home. Thanks for being with us, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Dan Canning is with World Remit, whose U.S. headquarters employs 95 people here in Colorado. And we spoke for our series, Disruptors, about companies that are trying to change how business is done. That deadly crash on I-70 last month, when a semi barreled into stopped cars, has put a lot of attention on truckers and what it takes to stay in control. For some perspective, CPR's Nathaniel Miner rode with a truck driver on the challenging route from the mountains into Denver. Jesus? Hey, I'm Nate. Good to meet you. Send here. I met Jesus in a parking lot in Silverthorne. Oh, it's quite a climb. My name is Jesus Torres, and I am a truck driver. I grew up in Chihuahua, Mexico. How many times would you say you've driven I-70 in the last year? At least a couple of thousand times. You want to ask me how many times I've been over Lowland Pass? Sure. Three, four thousand times. We head up over Loveland Pass and then down toward Denver. And it's the downgrades that Torres says are the most delicate part of the drive. He says overusing the brake pedal can wear out or even ignite brake pads. So engine or jake braking is hugely important. You have to basically keep going down on your gears from 9 to 8 to 7 to 6. And that way you're, um, you're in much better shape. Your jake is going to be your best friend. We get to Genesee. It's just a few miles from the Denver metro, but we're still thousands of feet up in the foothills. And it's here that the semi in last month's crash picked up speed. The driver told authorities he hit 85 miles an hour. Torres says at that speed, brakes won't do much. They may slow you down a little bit, but at 85 miles an hour, there's nothing you can do at that point. The turns here are really tight, and it can look like you're out of the mountains, but you're not. You should know that you've got to slow down here. We're going to pass a couple more signs to tell you steep grades, sharp curves, next five miles, use low gear. Do you ever worry that uh, people don't understand those signs? I do. Actually, I do. I, I, I do believe that some people don't, don't really get the, the picture of it, especially with, you know, semis or drivers from out of state that have never been this area before. The driver in last month's crash was Cuban and lives in Texas. His lawyer says he's driven in Colorado before, but couldn't say exactly how much mountain experience he had. Torres says he often worries about the training and experience of his fellow drivers. Myself, when I started driving, I explained to my boss that I, didn't, that I did not have any experience driving semis in the mountains. And they told me, we will train you. We will take two, three, four weeks, and it took about a month 
for me to learn the basics. And even after that, you know, it took a while, I'll say at least a year before I even felt, felt comfortable driving in the mountains. Beyond that, Torres says there's another problem. He's paid by the hour, but most drivers are paid by how many miles they drive or how many loads they deliver. And after chugging uphill, the chance to go downhill quickly can be tempting. They're trying to make up time. You take this chance to go a little bit faster. That, that's just the way it is. And you've got signs left and right, 45 miles an hour. And a lot of guys, they just don't follow the rules. A few miles later, we're through all of the curves. It's here that the truck collided with backed-up commuters and semi-trucks. Yeah, we're just getting to the spot here where it happened. Uh, it's, it's, it's sad what happened, you know. I, I don't wish that on anybody. And um, I'm very sorry for the families that uh, lost uh, loved ones. Have, have people you know, around the shop been talking about it? Uh, there were guys talking about it, um, you know, giving an opinion of what could happen, uh, mechanical problem, perhaps the driver didn't pay attention. Uh, there's just so many things that could have happened. Yeah, I guess we don't really know yet. It's all kind of speculation at this point. Right, right. Like I said, it could happen to anybody. It could happen to a guy from New York, from California. It could happen to me. Um, I think that could happen to anybody. We get to Taurus's shop, Dixon Brothers in North Denver. He drops me off and then gets ready for his next trip. And CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner is with us now for a bit of discussion. Hi, Nate. Hey, Ryan. I understand that just as you were getting out of the truck and into Denver, a big rig caught fire back in Silverthorne. Yes, that's right. Uh, eyewitnesses say they saw its brakes actually catch on fire. Uh, the truck driver used one of those runaway truck ramps to come to a stop. And I talked to CDOT about this, and they told me that the two ramps from the Eisenhower-Johnson Tunnel down into Silverthorne are the most used in the state. The most used in Colorado. That's so interesting because we had uh, two Colorado Wonders questions about runaway truck ramps. Do we know how often they're used? So since 2016, at least 20 times on those two ramps west of the tunnel. Statewide, it's even more, uh, 50 times since 2016. And... This is an undercount. It's just how many times state patrol has responded to incidents at those ramps. There are probably many more instances where a ramp was used, but the truck left before state patrol got there. Is there a penalty for using these ramps? Um, you know, are folks trying not to get caught? So the state patrol says there's a misconception about that. There's no penalty or fine for using a ramp, but it can cost thousands of dollars to actually tow your truck back out. And maybe that's a reason not to use a ramp, I suppose, money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Jesus Torres, who I uh, rode with last week, he told me some drivers can work their engine brake and slow down without having to pull over. But he says if a driver is out of control, they should absolutely just get off the road. If you cannot pull over uh, and you see that runaway ramp, use it. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to sit there for 20 minutes, uh, let your brakes cool down. And you can, most of the time, you can get back on the highway again. 
So Torres told me that as we passed the runaway ramp near Genesee, uh, and that's the one that the truck driver in last month's crash just passed right by. It's pretty flat, and you can kind of see how a trucker would pull in and then pull out again. But some others, like those west of the tunnel, um, those are a really steep incline, uh, and it might be tougher to you know quickly extricate yourself from them. I see. So there are different kinds of ramps. That's right. How did your ride-along compare to, say, driving your car down I-70? So <laughs> my little Toyota Corolla, um, that you know, kind of flies down I-70 and you can, um, you know, it it's fine, right? It's a little car. Uh, but, you know, when I have to go to Home Depot and rent a truck, you know, that feels like the biggest thing on earth. And <laughs> so then I climb into Jesus's truck, which is this giant 18-wheeler, and it was just like, oh, my God, how do you even do this? Um, and you know, that's, it's so obvious, but those trucks are so big and they're way more complicated than Corollas or, or passenger cars. Um, you know, they've got 18 gears, some of them, and you have to manually shift in and out of those gears. Um, engine braking is a skill that you have to learn over time. Um, and Torres says, you know, his few first few months in the mountains, he was really nervous, but over time he just got more comfortable. It's really helpful. I think also to remember if you're driving a car and you're weaving in and out of traffic to be mindful of what truckers are dealing with. A little walking in their shoes there, their brake shoes. What's the latest on the investigation? So the driver is facing 40 charges, including four counts of vehicular homicide. Um, but, you know, we really won't hear much um, for now. Uh, the next court hearing is in July. And until then, we're, we're not going to get a whole lot from investigators. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner. He's been looking into trucking safety in light of last month's crash on I-70. What questions do you have about our state? Maybe they relate to the news like this one or to some long-ago chapter of state history. Ask and we'll hunt for the answer via Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. <laughs> In Montrose, Colorado, on the western slope, a grisly legal drama is unfolding. A former funeral homeowner is accused of mishandling remains through her side gig as a body parts broker. CPR's Stina Sieg considers the toll it's taken on families. When Barb Abbott thinks of the week her mother-in-law spent dying, she smiles. I've never experienced anything quite like it. She says it was like an intimate party in that hospital room. Just a few friends, her and her husband, Ron, and his mother, Shirley, who seemed at peace. We just had the most wonderful time. We really did, and I think she did, too, because we kept her laughing as long as she was alert. She was laughing and having a good time, too. They grieved Shirley's death, but also accepted it as the natural course of life. Then, four years later, they started hearing rumors about Sunset Mesa Funeral Directors, the business that had handled Shirley's body. Then came the FBI raid. That was shocking. Absolutely shocking. Ron Abbott says the stories in the Montrose Daily Press sounded crazy. Sunset Mesa also operated a body brokering business. And owner Megan Hess was accused of sometimes selling remains without consent from families. There were also allegations of loved ones receiving boxes of cat litter and concrete dust instead of ashes. I was like, oh my God, that might be my mom too. A letter from the FBI confirmed that Shirley's body might have been part of the alleged scheme. Barb Abbott says Hess may have asked her and Ron about some kind of donation, 
but they never would have imagined that would have meant dismemberment. How can somebody fool you so much? It's just so sad. An email to Hess for the story was not immediately returned. In a motion to dismiss one of several lawsuits she's facing, Hess argues there's not credible evidence against her and that the accusations are, quote, hysterics and exaggeration. As these legal cases go forward, the Abbots are not taking part. Ron doesn't want to know any more about what might have happened to his mother's body. I've discussed that with myself quite a few times and was like, maybe it's just better to leave it the way it is. Faced with the same decision, a friend of theirs felt she couldn't walk away. When Mary Bergner got a call from the FBI last October, she listened to everything they could tell her about her late husband Jim's body. And I just broke down. I was, I felt totally betrayed. Jim had specifically told her he did not want his body donated to science. But there was his name in a book of records belonging to Hess and these words. Head and neck, two hands and wrists, two feet and ankles. I haven't gotten over it. I don't know if I ever will. Bergner says she's been robbed of the good memories of Jim's passing. He died right before turning 79, and instead of awake, she threw a final birthday party for this man whose smile she fell in love with. Hess and her mother helped decorate and served food. They just came across as being such a sweet people. It's no wonder they're making money like hand over foot. And the money is key here. Hess is accused of enticing customers with cheap cremations. She was $400 less than the other funeral home. All this happened because I wanted to save $400. That's my guilt. Bergner says she feels violated, a word the abbots used too. You know, you kind of shove it to the back of your head and heart. Then you see something in the paper like this morning, and it all just comes roaring back again. The day we talked, the Montrose paper was reporting about Hess asking for a lawsuit to be dismissed. Bergner's joined another suit that's yet to be filed. It's not about money, she says. It's about holding people accountable. You know, I owe it to Jim to, to do something. She just can't slip through the cracks. Mary Bergner and the Abbots are among scores of families affected by Sunset Mesa. Bergner says around here, people understand how she's feeling. You can see how mad everybody is and nobody wants to let it go. So it's really hard on a small community like this. But she also says she's lucky to be going through this in such a tight-knit place instead of some big city. Here, she doesn't feel alone. In Montrose, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Finally today, Colorado music fans may know Daniel Rodriguez as the guitarist and vocalist of Boulder folk favorite Elephant Revival. That band went on hiatus last year, but its members are staying busy. Rodriguez recorded his debut solo EP called Your Heart, the Stars, the Milky Way, which was released earlier this year. He told us how writing new music helped him come to terms with the breakup of his band of 12 years. I'm really grateful to to have songwriting as a tool for that, you know, to, to work through emotions and just get through different life phases and things. It's it's a powerful medicine. So, 
you know, getting through that breakup. If I wasn't a songwriter, I don't know what I'd be doing. Maybe whittling spears, or I don't know. Little one crying as his teeth push through. Little one learning a thing or two. So let him go this time, let's let him fall. How you gonna learn to climb up from your crawl? Our love for you is so deep and it's wide. But one day you're gonna have to walk away from our side and your tears. And your tears are just growing pains. And your tears. And your tears are just growing pains. Awkward one growing tall. Yeah, one day you're gonna see it all But for now, love is young You found someone Your heart, it overflows But your heart, it doesn't know The most good things in this life, they end Some things in this world, they just don't bend to some greater hope But hope doesn't hold a flame to just letting go And your heart breaks Heartbreak is just growing pain. Heartbreak, heartbreak is just growing pain. Go home, most times not without pain. Go home, it's just growing pain. Singer-songwriter Daniel Rodriguez with the track. Growing Pains. His debut solo record is Your Heart, The Stars, The Milky Way. He performs at Mishawaka in Bellevue, Colorado on Saturday. Special thanks to Matt Hers, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Growing pain.